take your Bibles this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're in our series in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. I debated on what to title this. I could have called it the big party, uh, but I call it the handwriting on the wall. When I was a kid, I used to hear adults say the handwriting's on the wall. In fact, last night I was uh, at a wedding and at the table was talking to a gentleman and he said, the handwriting's on the wall about something. And I kind of smiled to myself because as a kid, I would hear people say that and I, and I wasn't, you know, I didn't always, as a kid, know what they were talking about. Well, it really comes from here. Handwriting on a wall means something's imminent. Uh, for instance, let's say uh, someone in their business gets caught uh, misappropriating funds. They embezzle their travel expense and an investigation starts and one co-worker might say to another, the handwriting's on the wall for that person, meaning they're is going to be handled, and it's just a matter of a time. That's what we find in this passage. Uh, before we look at this young man named Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall for his life, let me give you a little, a little history uh, to maybe bring it all into context, because after this chapter of the Babylonian Empire, uh, it ends here. I mean, this is the end of the Babylonian Empire. So let me, let me kind of help you a little bit. And I'm sorry if you don't like history, because you have a pastor that likes history, so... You just have to suffer, suffer it, okay? Nidus was the first official king of Babylon. He uh, broke off, he was a general, and he, he actually defeated the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the power before Babylon came along, and so he, he actually conquered Nineveh, uh, subdued the Assyrians, and, and was the man, in a, and again, God's sovereign over the affairs of the world. So God uh, moved all these things to happen, and Nabonidus actually uh, brought the Babylonian Empire on its ascent. Now, he didn't bring it to where it was in its greatness. His son did, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy that is the focus of most of the first four chapters of the book. Nebuchadnezzar, his son, uh, subdued the Egyptians at Kirkamish, uh, subdued all the other powers around who allied against him, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, you know, all, all the stuff we study. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar ruled uh, for 43 years. He died in 562 B.C. So the kingdom reached its, the Babylonian kingdom reached its pinnacle under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, after Nebuchadnezzar died, you'll remember Daniel was the uh, number two guy in the kingdom from having interpreted the dreams. A series of kings came along in rapid succession. So the, king, the kingdom began to become unstable uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, a guy named Merodach, he, he ruled for two years and he was assassinated by his brother-in-law. And then his brother-in-law ruled for four years um, and he died seemingly of natural causes, but who knows, because in that time people were coming and going. Uh, then his young son ruled for two months and guess what happened to him? Yeah, somebody killed him too. So he ruled for two months and he was assassinated. Now, eventually a guy named Nabonidus uh, killed, assassinated the last person and, and became the king. And Nabonidus ruled for 17 years. He was the next longest after Nebuchadnezzar. It was under Nabonidus uh, that the kingdom really saw its most decline. He, Nabonidus was defeated. Uh, the Medes and the Persians had joined forces to fight against Babylon and he 
his kingdom began to fall apart. And he left his oldest son, Belshazzar, the guy that's the, the focus of chapter 5, left him in charge of the city of Babylon and actually made him co-regent with him. So in the last part of the kingdom, there was Nabonidus, who was the king, who didn't live in Babylon, who was really most of the time on the run, living somewhere because he, he was losing control fast. And really, by the time you get to chapter 5, here's the point. The only thing left of Babylon that really had any power or official representation was the city. And Belshazzar, this young man, is the king over the city, although he's number two in the kingdom, his dad still being alive. And so that kind of puts in perspective for you what's happening here. Now, in the midst of this, they're at war. They're at war with the Medes and the Persians. Let that sink in for a minute. They're at war. Their kingdom's on its heels. And so what does Belshazzar think it's a good idea to do? I'm going to throw a party for a thousand of my, of my posse, and we're going to have a throwdown here and have a good time. Um, not what I would be doing if the kingdom was under siege, because while he's having the party, mind you, the Mede and the Persian armies outside the walls trying to get in. So arrogant and confident was this young man that nobody could ever get inside Babylon, that the city was so protected, they didn't even post guards on the walls. So get that in your mind. There's an enemy army outside the city trying to get in, and there are no soldiers on the walls. What is that a recipe for? Disaster, okay? So that's the background of the story. Look at verses 1 to 4 as we pick up in this chapter. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now pause there. It was, histor it, it was a historical truth that kings would throw parties to exalt their own glory. In other words, they would throw these parties to say, aren't I a great king? Look at all my money. Uh, we're going to have a good time and I'm a great king because you're having a good time. So in the midst of war, in the midst of all that's going on, he throws a party to exalt himself. Okay, verse 2, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar, now Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his father, but in historical terms the way they speak, he was in his lineage, so he's a father in that sense, okay? His father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them, verse 3, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. There's a lot you could say about this, but I was reading behind a guy named James Montgomery Boyce, and uh, he, said, he said something very profound here that I think we need to consider concerning Belshazzar. He says, sin is never stagnant. Sin is never stagnant. Let me explain what he was saying because it's appropriate to this passage. You will have noticed in life, in your own life, as we have all sinned, or in the lives of others that you've observed or that you know, that sin is never happy where it is. In other words, a person who gives themselves to sin always wants to do more, right? Right? In other words, if a person gets into a sin, that sin will grow old after a while. It won't give them the same excitement it used to give them before. It won't be the same enthusiasm. And so they will look for more sin, worse sin, 
to get the same excitement from the sin or the same thing they were looking for in the first place. Sin is never stagnant. Now, in this case, here's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, his great-great-great-grandfather, had sinned against God, sinned against the God of heaven. He was prideful, and he was arrogant. And last week in chapter 4, what did God do? God humbled him, right? The vision and the dream of the tree, and seven years like an animal with a mental problem, and then God restored him, and he repented, and he got saved. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had sinned. Along comes his lineage, who knows the story. They all know what happened to the great Nebuchadnezzar. They all know about what happened to him. They all know his testimony because we read it when, he, when he, his senses came back to him and he was restored to the throne. What did he do? He said, let me tell you about the God of heaven, the real God who controls everything. And I extol him and I honor him now. They knew the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. This young man, Belshazzar, though, takes the sin of pride and arrogance a step further. It's a downward spiral. He's not only guilty of pride, but drunken debauchery here. You think, well, all the kings did that. Doesn't make it right. Uh, you know, sometimes the kids say, well, everybody's doing it. Doesn't make it right. Hey, majority doesn't make right. There's only one person who decides what's right and wrong, and who is that? God, not the majority. Well, Belshazzar is engaged in drunken debauchery and who knows what uh, was going on in that party. You can only imagine. And, th and then idolatry. And then he compounds it by having them bring the vessels that were in the temple in Jerusalem to engage in his drunken debauchery. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I'm glad you asked because here's the big deal. When something is sanctified, what does that mean? It means it's set apart. It's not just set apart, but it's set apart for God's use. Watch this. When you get saved, what are you? You are sanctified, aren't you? You say, what does that mean? I am set apart for God's use, which means we shouldn't be being used for anything else, right? And we shouldn't be using our lives and our bodies for anything else. Why? Because we're sanctified. Well, these vessels were sanctified, set apart to be used in the temple for the worship of Jehovah God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew they were there when he conquered Jerusalem because his predecessor, his dad, had sent some emissaries there when Hezekiah was sick. And Hezekiah, in pride, said, let me show you how much money I got. And he showed them all the treasures. So when they took Jerusalem, they knew exactly where it was. And they took it all back to Babylon. But at least Nebuchadnezzar was smart enough to leave them alone and leave them in the treasure house, not this boy. This boy brings out that which was sanctified and set apart for use for worship of Jehovah God to sin with them. What do you think God's attitude about that was? Not happy, okay? God was offended. Now, before we look at what happened, let me make application to life today. Because it is so easy. Listen, it is so easy for us to fall into the same trap of going down the rabbit hole of sin. And sin will all, is always, listen, sin is always a downward spiral. It's never up. It's never good. Sin never brings anything positive. It's always negative. And it always gets worse. Some illustrations I was thinking when I was writing this this week. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, Pastor, I only gamble a little bit. Okay, well, that's your business, okay? I mean, that, that's your business. But you know what a little gambling leads to, right? It leads to a lot of gambling. 
All right, if you aren't careful, I mean, why? Because sin is always a downward spiral. You say, well, pastor, is it really a sin to gamble? Well, that's a different message. Just suffice it when I say yes, okay? Just, it is. You say, well, how is it a sin? Well, because everything you have belongs to God. And what did God say we're supposed to do to get money and things we need? We're supposed to work, not gamble, okay? So a little bit of gambling will lead to what? A lot of gambling. Well, how about this? How about, how about at work? Flirting. Well, it's harmless, Pastor. We, you know, we just, you know, my, you know, there's this lady in the office, and we, you know, we like one another, and we just kind of, you know, compliment one another and flirt with one another. Yeah, well, what does a little sin lead to? And by the way, that is a sin. The only person you ought to be flirting with is your spouse, not somebody at work. So you start flirting with somebody at work, and next thing you know, you're having an adulterous affair. Sin always leads to more sin. And we could go down the list. Boy, this is a biggie today. Recreational drinking. Well, pastor, we just drink when we're at dinner and all. That's your business, okay? I'm telling you, that's your business. But I also have the right to tell you as a pastor that a little drinking usually leads to a lot of drinking, okay? There is that potential. Not for everybody, but there is that potential. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag on my oldest son for just a minute. He was home on vacation, and we were talking about the Navy. You know what they do in the Navy a lot? They drink a lot. I mean, sailors are, uh, sailors are drinkers, all right? I've never drank in my life, just never had, just didn't want to. And I was talking to my oldest boy about it. He's 25. He's 25, so he can do whatever he wants to between him and God. I can't tell him what to do. But we were talking, and he said, man, a lot of my shipmates, they, they like to drink. I said, yeah, no kidding. And he said, you know, they always want to know why I don't want to drink. And I said, well, what do you tell him? He said, well, it's my choice. I said, well, that's good. And then he said this to me. He said, if I ever tried it, if I would like it, and then become a drunkard. And he said, no, I don't want to take the chance. Yeah. Well, that's pretty wise for a 25-year-old. He doesn't want to take the chance. He doesn't want to go down the road. Why? Because what do we see right here? If you open a door and you start down the road, sin always leads to more sin. And Satan's a master at doing that, by the way. Okay? He can take a little thing and just ruin your life. He does it all the time. Drugs are the same way. Lying, dishonesty. We can go down the whole list. You know, well, I just tell white lies. Well, what's the difference between a white lie and any other color of lie? I don't know, I don't know what the difference is, right? So if we tell a little bit of lie, it's, then what? Then it becomes easy to tell more lies? I don't know. But it's always bad. So what we find here is, is a young man, Belshazzar, who's on this path uh, of destruction and doesn't even know it. And so what a warning for us. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he said, listen, he said, I recommend that you enter in at the narrow gate, the, the little one, not the big one. Because he said, for wide is the gate and brawls away that leads to destruction. And there's a lot of people going that way. He said, but narrow is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. Satan would have us sin a little so that he can lead us to sin a lot, which is the broad way and the destruction way. Belshazzar was on the wrong road. Would you agree with me? He's, he's on the road where his, his grandpa and his descendants were a little bit in the sin, and now he's, he's all in it. Now, here's God's response. Look at verses 5 to 9. In the same hour, so in other words, while they're having this party, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. 
Then the king's countenance was changed. I had a lot of thoughts about it, but I'll save it. The king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Well, the Bible's so specific, isn't it? He scared the jeepers out of him when he saw his hand up there. Verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold about his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third one? Because his daddy's still alive, right? Avenatus and him and, and then whoever does this. Verse 8, now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king, the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Archaeologists who have dug in the ruins of ancient Babylon, and if you, just, this is kind of cool. In Iraq there, where the city was at, there's the river, and the river's in a different place now, but where the old city was at, where the river used to be, archaeologists had dug up the old city. And you know what they found there? This, this city, the one that's right here in Daniel chapter 5. They've dug this up out of the sand, and they found a room that was 56 feet wide and 173 feet long with evidence of plaster walls. Isn't that cool? Okay? I mean, archaeologists found that. They dug it up in the sand and said, hey, look what we found. And then all of us who read the Bible go, yeah, we could have told you it was there before you dug it up because the Bible said it's there, right? But, but the archaeologists verified there was a room there that could have held this many people, and very likely... Uh, this is exactly where this happened. Now, this, is, this scene is, is interesting. Again, they're having a natural-born throwdown party in there. Who knows what's going on? They're drinking. The music's going. You know, the bass is thumping, the whole, the whole deal, right? And so they're drinking, and they're carrying on. They get the, the utensils from the temple. They bring it in, and they're drinking. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a hand appears and starts writing on the wall. Now, the Bible doesn't say, but I just have to imagine in my heart that it went from wide open to zero instantly, don't you think? I mean, it went from, it went from loud and raucous to dead silence. The indication is the king was sitting in a special spot. Belshazzar had his, you know, you know how it is, like there's everybody and then there's the king. There's everybody and there's the king and his posse. So the king, it looks like, stood up and everything got quiet. And he sees his hand writing on the wall, and his countenance changed. I think the blood drained from his face along with the alcohol. Every, I think everything else drained from his face, and he was afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, if you study history, these people were very superstitious. And so something weird like that, his hand appearing in, listen, that would be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, in any setting, this hand appears and starts writing a message on the wall. He immediately, like his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he immediately knew something bad was up, right? I mean, he knew this isn't normal, and wherever that hand came from, it's got to be bad news. And in fact, whatever's getting written on the wall can't be good. And so his countenance changed, and so afraid was he that his joints wouldn't hold him up anymore. His knees shook, and I suspect he had to sit down because he was afraid. And I, and I thought about this, again, when I was studying over this this week. You know, sin is all fun and great and wonderful until God shows up. That's just the way it is. 
Sin is so full of, you know, oh, we're having life and, you know, and we're going to have a party and we're going to have a good time and we can do whatever we want to and who cares? I'm the king. I'm in charge of my life and it's my money and it's my this and it's my that and God shows up. Let me tell you something. When God shows up, all that bravado and all that I'm in charge and all that stuff goes right out the window. Because when God shows up, you know what everybody knows? He's the one in charge. The world today thinks they're in charge. People in the United States think they're in charge. Congress thinks they're in charge. Oh, I won't get political. You know why we do dumb stuff? And I'm not picking on any party. I'm saying, you know why we do dumb stuff in general? Because we follow sin and we don't listen to God. And when God shows up, the party's over. Right? Sin's okay until judgment comes. And understand this, judgment will always come. There's always a day of accountability. And for Belshazzar, here it is. God showed up in his party. He, he went a step too far. He went and got the vessels. And God said, okay, that's enough. And the hand shows up and starts writing on the wall. Now, he does what his granddaddy did and what all of them did. They call in all the brain trust of Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar did that. Bring in the Chaldeans, bring in the soothsayers, bring in the magicians. I want them to all apply their trades and, and read this thing to me and, and tell me what it means. Oh, and, and to help you be encouraged to do that, I'll give you a gold chain and wealth and I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. I need to know what this says. And so they all come in and guess what? Same problem Nebuchadnezzar had. You can't understand what God reveals unless God reveals it to you. You can't understand the truth of God unless God's the one revealing it. The same is true today. Lost men and women can read the Bible and it's nothing to them. The only part they're going to understand is when they get to the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. But they can't understand things about the Christian life because they're not Christians. And because the Holy Spirit's not living in them and they don't understand. And so all of these Chaldeans tried to read this thing, but they couldn't. And so look at verse 10. This is an interesting passage too. Notice what happens. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Verse 12, and as much as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Don't you want to know who this lady was? Well, the problem is we don't know. It isn't one of Belshazzar's wives because they're all at the party with them. We already know that. So it is either, it's either his mother, but I don't think it's her either. There's a, there's a woman in history named Amidas, and it was a widow of Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's her. I think she's one of the queen mothers, like maybe even Nebuchadnezzar's widow, who hears the ruckus and goes in and says, hey, young man, these guys ain't able to help you because I've seen this before. There's a guy in the kingdom named Daniel. He's the guy you want. If you got a dream you can't understand, call Daniel. 
like the Ghostbusters, right? If you got this thing you can't handle, call Daniel. Daniel's the one. Now, brings up another question that's not answered here. What happened to Daniel? Last time we saw Daniel, he's with Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the number two man in the kingdom. Now we're about five kings later with a co-regent guy in Babylon, and Daniel's nowhere around. What happened to Daniel? I would suggest two things. One, either retired, maybe he looked around and said, yeah, I had enough of this, and, and you know, went to his house. Or one of the kings demoted him. When Nebuchadnezzar died, they said, well, you know, you're a Jew, and we don't really like you anyway, and so uh, why are you here? And they demoted him. In fact, wouldn't this be interesting? And I don't know, because it doesn't say. What if, what if Belshazzar's the one who demoted him? What if it's Belshazzar who said, we don't need your services anymore, you can go? Well, notice what happened when Daniel shows up. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. Don't you just, wouldn't you just love to see Daniel's face about then going, same old story, man. What, what, what is it you need? Verse 16. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretation and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now you'll notice I'm not dealing with every single thing in this passage because it's so long, but there is one thing I want to note right here. Do you notice the disrespect of this young man to Daniel? You notice it right away, don't you? And here's why I say that. By this time, Daniel's an older man. I mean, he lived all the way through every one of these kings. He's a, he's a, he's a man of God. His resume is pretty impressive. I mean, think about Daniel's resume. Interpreter of dreams, you know, keeper of kings. I mean, I told you while Nebuchadnezzar was seven years insane, I think it was Daniel who protected his kingdom and brought him back and was a man who witnessed to him and helped him come to Christ, helped him come to God by faith. So here's this man, this aged man, this sage, this wise man, this man of, of reputation. And this young man, instead of addressing him with any respect, said, are you Daniel, one of those slaves we took from Jerusalem? Are you Daniel, one of those captives that's living here because we brought you here? See, disrespectful and uh, derogatory and demeaning. Listen to me, pride will cause you to treat people that way. Pride will cause you to treat people that way. We should never treat people that way. He talked down to a man that he should have respected. I know he's the king, and I know he has the power, and I know he has the authority. But understand this today, even in the business world, a place of power and authority doesn't give you the right to be disrespectful to people. It doesn't give you the right to treat them as less than a person that God loves. And so Daniel is spoken down to here. And I like Daniel's response. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, I love this, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't need your stuff. I mean, Daniel, I don't need your gold. I don't need your, I don't need your title. 
you keep your gold and you keep your stuff. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I'll tell you two reasons why Daniel didn't need his stuff. Number one, he didn't want it. God gave him the ability to do what he was going to do, and he didn't need to get paid for it. Number two, Daniel knew the kingdom wasn't going to be around past that night, okay? So it wasn't going to do him any good to have gold chain and be second in the kingdom for about 12 hours or however many more hours it was going to be. So Daniel told him, I don't need your stuff. Now listen, Daniel wasn't being disrespectful to him as the king. He was just being straightforward with him. I don't need your money. You keep it. But I'll tell you what you want to know. Now look at verse 18. Now Daniel gives him a history lesson here. And in a very respectful way, Daniel schools him a little bit. Look at verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. So he says, the great Nebuchadnezzar that founded this kingdom, the God of heaven did that through him. And because, verse 19, of the majesty that he gave him, all people's nations, languages, trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. We read that last week in chapter four. And what Daniel does here is he reminds Belshazzar, you know what happened to the great Nebuchadnezzar. You know how the God of heaven humbled him. He reminds him of the lessons learned. He reminds him of what he should have learned. But look at verse 22. But you, his son, you, his descendant, you in the kingly line, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. There's the rub. You knew better, and you didn't change anyway. What's going to be the rub when we stand in front of Jesus one day, the lost men and women? even us Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be you knew, but you didn't do what you knew. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Verse 22, verse 23. He says, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. He said, here's the problem, Belshazzar. You've not only been profitable, but you've lifted yourself up against the God of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Boy, that's a great statement. Isn't it? The God who holds your breath in his hand and guides all your ways, you not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and his writing was written. He said, the hand came from God, Belshazzar. The hand came from the same God that you've blasphemed. That hand came from him. The message is from him. Can I say to us today very quickly, if you know what you're supposed to do before God and God has been gracious enough to enlighten you to understand, you better do it. Because to know and not do is worse than not ever knowing in the first place. You understand? If you've been convicted, if God's dealt with your heart online, you're watching or here, and you say, man, I know I need to be saved, but not today. That's dangerous because you know and you've been convicted. You're going to have to stand in front of God one day and give an answer for why you didn't respond to what you knew. 
for what you knew you should have done. That's what his sin was here. Blasphemy, lifting yourself up against God. Now the interpretation, let's look at that very quickly. Look at verse 25, and this is the interpretation, the inscription that was written. Meaning, meaning, tekel, you farsen. This is the interpretation of each word. Meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. The Babylonian kingdom would end that night. Remember, God told Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, but your kingdom will end and another kingdom will come. Here it is right here. The fact that the kingdom would end, it would end on this evening within a matter of hours. Tekel, verse 27, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. The first phrase has to do with the kingdom. Tekel is a word, it really is a, a word that means to be weighed on a balance, a right weight. Personally, Belshazzar had been weighed in the balance of righteousness, and guess what? He didn't measure up. For all have sinned, and what? Come short of the glory of God. When we get put on God's scales for righteousness, we all come up short. This man came up short. The only way to balance the scales is to be in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we put God's righteousness on one side, and then the righteousness of Jesus is on the other side, and we're in him. And so we balance out, okay? This man, his life was measured, and he came up short. Verse 28, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and <clears throat> given to the Medes and the Persians. Interesting historical process here. The Medes and the Persians were outside the wall at that very moment. They could not get in, but there was a river. The river flowed through Babylon. And so what they did is they went up to the north where the river flowed in and they dug a canal and diverted the river to a lake. And when the water began to flow to the lake, guess what happened to the water going through the city? It went down. And there are no guards. And so when the water went down, they all jumped in the river ways deep and waded into the city. And nobody's there to meet them. And they took the city without a fight. So God said, right here in verse 28, <coughs> your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Babylon fell in 339 B.C. They took it without a fight, took the whole city. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, that was the shortest reign ever. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Let's close with a couple of observations here real quick. Fantastic passage. Lessons, lessons to learn here. You would think, you would think with Daniel standing there, this man of reputation and renown properly interprets the passage that's written on the wall and says, tonight your kingdom is going to be taken from you and tonight it's going to be over. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say what Belshazzar did from the time he received the message until he died. Did the party start up again? I, I mean, you know, we're not told what happened. But one would think the wise thing to have done would have been what? Hey, Daniel, can you introduce me to that God who's, who's about to take the kingdom away, and can I, can I plead for mercy? Daniel, I heard that Nebuchadnezzar gave a testimony after he went through his deal. Can you tell me about what happened to him? But no, we don't get any we don't get any indication that Belshazzar even, even cared or considered what Daniel said to him. 
Maybe he was so prideful that he didn't think it could happen. Maybe he thinks nobody can get in this city. That's preposterous. Nobody can get in here. But whatever the case is, he didn't respond. And it teaches us a couple of things. Number one, sin always blinds us. Listen, if you don't hear anything else today, listen to this. Sin always blinds us. When we get into sin and we willingly embrace it, we can't see how bad it's going to get. We can't see where it's going to take us because sin always blinds us. Satan, Jesus says Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. And the way he does it is he blinds us. Isn't it amazing that, that people who are smart and intelligent and successful, they willingly get into sin and it takes them down a path to destruction. They lose their home, their families, their business, their profession, and they should have seen it coming, but why didn't they see it coming? They're smart enough to see it coming, but sin blinds us. We don't think we're going to get caught. We don't think they're going to get into walls. They don't, we don't think that these things are going to happen. Sin blinds us, and we have to be careful. I would say Belshazzar was blinded by his sin. Secondly, think about this. We see sin in the world. Belshazzar ruled, and his dad ruled, and nothing happened. Sin and debauchery, and nothing happens. And today in our society, we see people living with complete abandon to sin and doing all kinds of things, and nothing seems to happen. And we think sometimes, man, is God, you know, is God watching? Is God going to respond to this? Is God going to correct this sin? Understand this very, very clearly this morning. Sin is never free, and it's never overlooked, and God never overlooks it. What the Bible says is while God's offering grace and opportunity for repentance, he's storing up his wrath. He's putting it in a cup. He's mad. God's angry about sin. But instead of pouring it out on us right now, he's putting it in a cup. So the metaphor says, guess what's going to happen when the cup gets full? It's going to spill over. And it's going to get poured out. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation, when God pours out his wrath that's been stored up for the years, for the, for the time, he's going to pour it out without mitigation, meaning all that mercy and grace and, and opportunity for repentance will be no more. And God will pour it out in, in his full fury of his anger against sin. Belshazzar lived in sin and pride and arrogance. And God stored up the wrath for him. And now it's going to be poured out on him. And then one last thing. One last thing and we'll close. Nebuchadnezzar was proud and arrogant against God. And yet he had an opportunity to repent. God gave him the seven years and then let him come back to his kingdom. Why do we not see the same opportunity for Belshazzar? Nebuchadnezzar had an opportunity and he repented. Why do we not see the same thing? Because Belshazzar is just getting hammered. The, the army's coming and he's going to die. Why no opportunity? Listen, I'll tell you why. You ready? Belshazzar had reached a place in his life where he had so hardened his heart and pride and arrogance that he was given over to his sin and judgment and there was no repentance for him only judgment. In other words, he had come to a place where his conscience was seared and his heart was so hard that God turned him over to his sin, which led to his destruction. You say, does God do that? Yeah. See Pharaoh, same thing. Does God still do that? Yeah. Men and women today get turned over to their sin. Listen to me. This is serious business. We can so pursue sin like this young man did right here. And we can so resist God in our pride and our arrogance till there'll come a point when God will say, okay, fine, have it your way. Do it your way. You won't hear me and you won't hear 
grace and you won't hear opportunity, you won't hear repentance, have it your way. And when God turns a person over to their sin, they're pretty much done. Their heart gets hard, their conscience is seared, and they won't ever come back. Not because God can't save them, because God can save anybody. But God won't save somebody unless they're willing to be saved. And when a person's turned over their sin, they won't come back. Pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Here's a young man, king of a city, and his pride and his arrogance led to his downfall, led to the downfall of his nation, and led to the doom of his soul. If you're here this morning, don't go down the path that this young man went down. Don't follow sin, because why? It's always a downward path. It's always leading to destruction. Come to the God of heaven. Come to the one, as Daniel said, who holds your breath in his hands, who holds your life in his hands. Come to him today. Ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him to show you the truth. Ask him to show you the path to walk in life. Jesus Christ will save your soul if you'll ask him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the study that we have in this book of Daniel that this young man, Belshazzar, Lord, you loved him. God, you loved him and gave him every opportunity to be saved, but he hardened his heart and he blasphemed against you. And God, you turned him over to his sin and it led to his destruction. God, I pray that would not be the case for those who are here under the hearing of your word today and those online who will hear this message. God, that they understand you want to save them right now. But God, they have to be willing to say, God, I'm a sinner and you're right and I'm wrong. God, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I don't want to follow sin. I want to follow you. God, forgive me and save me. God, you'll save anybody who will ask. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. If I can pray with you or help you in any way, you come on the first verse. Have thine own way.